um, he has swimming lessons uh, which uh, take place at a pool in Timperley, um, which is um, set at 32 degrees. That's a hot pool. So that's, you know, it's deliberately a hot pool to allow small children to feel comfortable in it and actually concentrate on the, the whole swimming part rather than just wail at the fact that it's not a hot pool. But then when you, as, as admittedly as delightful as a holiday was, when you put him in a, a pool of 25 degrees naturally heated by the sun, there is the wailing. And it, yeah. was, it was almost like the old, and this, I'm, I'm conjuring this up having never done it, but have heard stories of it and would rather not do it and feel a bit uncomfortable about the prospect of doing it. When you take a lobster and put it alive into boiling water, mm. you apparently can hear the screams. Well, reverse boiling to cold, and that was my child's efforts as you put him in the water and took him out again. And then you put him in and you took him out again and just more and more dipping more and more and getting more and more furious reaction to the point that, um, as most parents do, you just ignored it and yeah, told him to shut up. <laughs> just shove him in and just get on with it. Yeah. 20, 25 still pretty warm. I don't think that's an uh, yes. act of cruelty. They're, By the end of the holiday, he was launching him in from the side. Yes, just chucking him like a rugby with ball. With a catapult. <laughs> but the, yes, it was the, the, the reason that I uh, used that figure is because that was the warmest of them, because it was the smallest of them. Mm. Um, the main pool, such as there was one, was like 22. He was not going anywhere near that. No. So even though we spent all this money on all these swimming lessons to get him used to water, and he loves bath time, and he kind of puts up with swimming, we're thinking... This is good. We can go on holiday. Responsible parents. We have done the legwork and he will be immediately acclimatized to the prospect of going swimming or at least being dunked in a pool. Not so. Swimming must take place under the harsher circumstances that you find at a Lanzarote resort. Yeah. And then they will be prepared to be dunked at some point during a holiday. Do you remember the former Bolton midfielder Stuart Holden? I do, the American. The American. So I follow Stuart Holden on Instagram because we have a friend in common, uh, and although we don't know each other. And his, he's got a child who would be nearly two, and his, he, either he or his wife put a video on of the child swimming in a pool like Michael Phelps. <laughs> and it's some technique that they've used where you don't use flotation devices. I mean, I don't know whether you you just sort of take the chance that the child won't drown, but apparently they believe, and I don't know if this, this is true, that there is some sort of natural instinct in a human for how to survive in water. And the, there is a belief among a certain strand of parents that, that all of the... The, the dunk fundamentalists. <laughs> yeah, well, so apparently in, um, in South, I've got a South African friend who told me that they have a concept called waterproofing. Oh, no, drownproofing, drownproofing. <laughs> waterproofing is something else. It's when... Apply knit wax to a tridul. The um, drown proofing, put the child in that, <laughs> which is to, which is similar. Like you just put you just put the kid in water, and they learn quickly that if they that they don't want to go to the bottom. I'm not bold enough to try either of these devices, but I would recommend looking for the Stuart Holden video because it is extraordinary. It looks ri in the nicest possible way about an infant. It looks incredibly weird to see a kid who is very much a kind of not even a toddler really. No, probably a toddler. A toddler, like, f swimming really elegantly through the water, underwater, from yeah. one side to the other. It's really strange to see. It looks like the sort of thing that you assume it must have been manipulated in some way, but I, I believe that Stuart Holden is better than that. The purpose of, of getting a child into swimming lessons this early, as we have done, and you wouldn't 
you're not teaching them to swim. You're teaching them just some sort of affiliation with the wet stuff. Mm. And um, we've got to the stage now and we'll soon end swimming because it has become very apparent to me that we cannot afford the three full years of swimming lessons that you would need to get into a state where he's swimming. But you do are you are at the stage at the moment where you do put him underwater and then let go. And you're right. It is the most the most um, swimming like thing that he has ever done. So you teach him on the surface, you teach him this way and that way you teach him, you know, little dunks and things like that. And they don't necessarily respond with kicks or or arm movements, but you you put them underwater, let them go. Oh, looks like he can swim. So there is merit in the Holden thesis. There you go. That's it. This is Stuart Holden has solved swimming lessons. I mean, I, I don't want to say this, Hugh, and I suspect Steve might agree with me, but I would have said that any swimming lesson at all for any child under the age of three is a complete waste of time. This is Set Piece Menu, packing up the tents and temporary barbecue as the rain begins to fall. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, currently enjoying seasonal downtime, and Rory Smith, definitely still on it 24-7. A reminder of our live show, which is, of course, our final show, and where we should start every show from now until then. Uh, SPM Live is on Wednesday the 20th of July. It's part of the Goals Aloud Podcast Festival in London. It will be at 21 Soho. Uh, We will be celebrating all things SPM as we bring down a curtain upon the podcast. If you haven't yet got a ticket, uh, all you need to do is head to myticket.co.uk. That's myticket.co.uk. They are £24.75. It includes the fees. I should probably do fewer PSAs uh, on the price as the uh, weeks go on. Just uh, rely on the emotional blackmailing that we've been doing. Uh, It is more than value to say that you were there when we bowed out with a spectacular final show, uh, asterisk by spectacular, footnote, not guaranteed. Uh, come and join us at SPM Live on 20th of July at Soho 21 in London and just head to myticket.co.uk uh, for your tickets. Now, the football is the Ajax Exodus, a generation started in their run to the Champions League semi-finals, regenerated after star names left then, is now being decimated again. Rory wants to scream into the void with a big Y. Uh, so that is uh, all to come. You can email the programme at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We've had some more lovely emails in response to the news of our departure. We will do them in a sec, but first some more of the traditional kind, which are, of course, insulting. Sorry, no, relevant. Uh, Tom Hindle is in Brooklyn. His email has the subject line, Pod 271 EA FIFA Rory occasionally beating his nephew, which he felt necessary to amend with a second email saying, just realised I may have accused an NYT journalist of abusing a child in my subject line. Oh, good. He meant, he says, beating him at FIFA. Yeah, it's not occasional. It's consistent. It just doesn't happen very often. (laughs) He says this. Hello, all, in his original email. Love the pod. Sad to see it end, etc. Uh, which is a nice brief way of doing something that we'll do at greater length in just a moment. SPM 271 about EA versus FIFA was among my favourite episodes yet. As a long-time FIFA-er, you lot hit on a load of good points. Back in the day, when I was first allowed a PS2, I was an avid PES player. Uh, That is Pro Evolution Soccer, for those people who need reminding. I still remember picking up the controller and mastering Merseyside Red. But after a few of my mates started getting FIFA and could play as actual teams, I begged my mum and dad to get Father Christmas to send me FIFA for 07. When you're a kid who religiously watches and plays the game, it's simply far cooler to actually play Liverpool versus Everton, for example. I'm now in my early 20s and seldom play as either Juventus or Lazio as it just feels a little weird to have a go with a team that isn't real. It's even weirder when you're getting thrashed 6-0 by a 10-year-old on the internet playing a team consisting of a load of made-up Brazilians. Uh, this deal, or a lack thereof, between EA, EA and FIFA 
does pose a few interesting questions, most of which you three, and of course Tarek, addressed in recent days, weeks. However, one thing I'd add is that I hope that EA actually stays at the forefront of it, partially for the charm of playing with lower league clubs. My roommate and I, both relatively grown-up lads with jobs, he is a consultant, I as a sports-slash-soccer journalist, managed to find time for a game of FIFA a few times per week. We both support pretty big-name Premier League clubs, but at some point it becomes boring to play one five-star team against another. Thus, we have recently switched to playing League One and League Two sides. We have both found that there's loads more fun in the game when the players are a bitch. Mo Salah, for example, is brilliant to play with, but he's so good, so quick, so skillful that it gets a bit boring. It's far more interesting to play with Crawley Town's barnstorming right winger, Kwesi Appiah, who's a 79 pace. Fairly handy, considering the team he plays in. As you guys have mentioned a bunch, football can be both crap and very exciting. Trying to get a knackered 62 overall rated striker to run the effing channels in extra time while tied at 4-4 is far more entertaining than wiggling the stick around, hitting a button and thrashing one into the top corner. Both for the sake of fun and perhaps a few quid for the lower league teams, I really do hope that your lower tier clubs remain as prominent or as at least accessible going forward. There is definitely an element of exposure that can computer game can bring perhaps not enough to stop the sinking ship of some but maybe just enough recognition to keep the kids interested if you will uh, thanks for everything guys uh, sad to see the pot and that's from tom who's originally from warwickshire but now lives in brooklyn i uh, yeah i would agree with that like i always f- I, I was i'm not i'm not of the generation and neither of you two are where you you want to play computer games on the internet against strangers that that <laughs> seems very strange to me but i understand that young people do it and it's it's fine um but i, think I do it if we had the time would you? Would you really want to play like an 11-year-old at a computer game when they would definitely beat you? I wouldn't. And I'd try and find an 11-year-old who couldn't beat me. There is no <laughs> such thing as an 11-year-old who couldn't beat you at a computer the, game. Inst- inst- Stephen's inst- admitting to trawling the internet for 11-year-olds. Let's backtrack <laughs> just a little bit, shall we? The, but I always found, and this, is, this might be the football manager geek in me, you, you want the journey when you're, when you're playing a computer game. It's, it's important to have a narrative, narrative in your head that you can't have if you're Barcelona. My nephew is always Barcelona, but it's boring. Uh, if, they, if they didn't have the weaker teams in FIFA, I would never beat the computer on the rare moments when I, I get access to it myself. So please, please, EA, make sure that those 62 ranked players remain in place. I ha- also hadn't realised that Lazio had, had removed their... Yeah, I didn't know that. ...their, um, their licensing. What, like, what, genuinely, what's in that for Lazio? Like there can't be any money in 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 selling the rights specifically to Pro Evo or whoever. If you're Lazio, I mean, I you know, I remember that great Sven Joran Eriksson team. I remember Crespo and Varane and Vieri and Signori and all that. But like, genuinely, who cares if Lazio aren't, aren't in it? There can't be that. There's not like a a global spread of fans thinking. Do you know? What? I desperately want to be Lazio. The Italians have always been at the forefront of turning their their back on collective bargaining arrangements. So why not when it comes to computer games? I don't know if that if that's post twenty sixteen. I think I don't know if we can say that that's true of the Italians. <laughs> there's a there's a PS to Tom's email. At twenty two years old, I can assert he says that there is still nothing cooler in life than having someone you know be on FIFA. My cousin, he says, Jack Hindle had a stint with Barrow from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty one, scoring thirteen goals while the Blue Words were still in the National League. Although he moved on when they got promoted, Jack was still available to play in FIFA twenty one, and it was brilliant to control the guy who I texted pretty much every day. Um, and that you could also say of the actual footballers 
Um, here on this also is Peter Pearson. Hi all, love the podcast, and in the future there will be an SPM-shaped hole in my podcast schedule when there aren't new episodes. Uh, about the recent EA versus FIFA discussion, I think your focus might have been a little too narrow. It was mostly, mostly licensing issues around a video game involving characters and teams playing football. Fair enough. However, I don't think you've considered the full scope of what a FIFA game of the future could be. EA Sports FC is a suitable title for a game about kicking footballs. FIFA, the game, could be exactly what it sounds like. You get to play as a FIFA delegate. Amazing. Imagine football manager, but without the boring stuff like picking a starting eleven or results. Instead, you get to make decisions about catering, fonts, minor tweaks to existing logos, etc. <laughs> How many hands can you shake in the hotel lobby before the clock runs out? The ultimate bureaucracy simulator. Railroad tycoon, papers please, and the Stanley parable all rolled into one. Sounds like a winner to me. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. That's from Peter Pearson. Do you think there'd be a shortcut for, you know, which button on the controller would be the shortcut for what's in it for me? <laughs> we, we probably have to be leaderly careful here, but it, it's probably fair to say that if you set the FIFA simulator in the late 2000s or early 2010s, you could have a lot of fun with kind of shady backhanders and backroom deals and avoiding the FBI and... <laughs> You're staying, be, staying at really fancy New York hotels. You, you, could, you could do like a Grand Theft Auto based around FIFA, <laughs> definitely. Yes, we will leave it there. Much, much against our desires to, uh, to tread some very, fairly thin legal lines, we will stop. Uh, and instead, just throw in a couple of indulgences before we move on. Alfie Bowman has written this. Dear Hugh, Rory, Stephen, Chinch, I'm absolutely floored the podcast is ending. It's been the narration of my university years and beyond into the world of work, and I really feel like I've grown up with you. No other podcast comes close to the warmth and friendship you've brought to mine, and I'm sure many other listeners' lives. I hold on to the belief that one day you'll return for a reunion tour when you're all old and wise and looking to fund the retirement. Uh, thanks for everything. That's from Alfie Bowman. And finally, Buffalo Chris Lomax from Bolton. Good evening, the Four Horsemen. Congratulations, Hugh. I am delighted for you. I look forward to hearing you read the shipping forecast. Not part of the job, but still, uh, if that's your way into the BBC, <laughs> then um, fair enough, Chris, you 75-year-old man. Uh, I'm writing this as I, or indeed, sailor. I'm writing this as I take a break from my zebra football manager, say, for context, I started at Derby. So there's a reference to the unlicensed Juventus uh, entry into football manager. I wanted to try and put into words how much this podcast has meant to me. In the five years I've been listening, sometimes joining in, but you never give me credit. Chris, we give you credit every time, apart from the times we steal your ideas and don't. With your debates on the sport we love, I have been through the following. In chronological order, not importance. The birth of Sun 1, that's his name. Battles with depression, the birth of Sun 2, the death of my father, and a divorce. There have been times when life has really kicked me in the bollocks, but hearing you four laughing, entertaining and discussing has grounded me in those moments when life has just felt too difficult to continue. I wept at the loss of Rory's brother. I worried for Andy when members of Andy's family became ill. I was overjoyed at the birth of Hugh's son, and I listened with a weird fascination when Stephen ate pastries directly into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I've contributed in <laughs> yes, some you way. Have, you have very that, that is the emotional heart of the podcast. Those who suffer from misophonia might disagree. Seppi's menu has time and time again reminded me of my passion for football and has brought sustenance to my soul. I am in a much better place now, and I wanted to thank you all at the end of this journey for dragging me off the floor, ignoring my despair, and droning on relentlessly about pragmatism. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Rory, and thank you, Hugh. Being part of this, our Seppi's menu family has warmed my heart. Uh, Chris Lomax. Chris, thank you so much. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. It's, it's interesting, actually, like, of all four of us, Steve's basically the same as he was at the start, isn't he? 
I just got the kids and all the hassle out of the, the way before this started clogging up many, many hours of our lives every week. So that seems like the sensible approach to have taken. I don't think that should be a criticism. I also think, I mean, like, I, I don't want to kind of turn very serious things into banter material. Why like, not? We've been like, doing that for five and a half years. Like, like Chin, both of Chinch's dogs died. Do you know what I mean? Like, Barely even gets a mention. I know people. People have just forgotten that. Let's have tributes to Chinch's dogs, please. That's important. But no, it, like we've all been through a, a lot of stuff quite in this in the in that kind of safe space public way, um, except Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Although well, Steve dot dot he got the first game on match of the day. Yes, yeah, there we go. See, we've all, we've all reached uh, the, the heights. But the, you, you could say that Stephen, as he mentioned, got the kids out of the way, which is good family planning if you're also intending to do a podcast or a Catholic's attitude to contraception. Uh, yeah, either way. Either, yeah. either way. Uh, so to our subject today, Ajax of Amsterdam, Europe's new feeder club, Ryan Gravenberch and Nusser Mazroy to Bayern, Sebastian Allaire to Dortmund. So that's three that have left already this summer. There might be the same number, all following Eric Ten Hag to Manchester United, apparently. A series of transactions that may speak to a wider truth. And if speaking to a wider truth makes you think that sounds like something that Rory Smith would say, then you're right, because he's very much the wider truth guy. So, Rory, tell us about the wider truth of this Ajax exodus. Well, the wider truth is that I am going through the... um and playing the hits and wanted to use one of our final episodes to help me work out what a piece was going to be because that's basically what I've used this podcast for over the last five and a half years and I don't see why I should stop now. No, exactly. Uh, You've got three more goes at it. So, yeah, the other three, Anthony, I think, will go to Man United. Uh, is it Lissandro Martinez, the central mm-hmm. defender, I think may end up in England as well. And Julian Timber appears to be on United's list, although he might stay. Um, obviously, Ten Hard's gone. And it just struck me, I think it was the Haller one, that when I when I saw that that Dortmund had had agreed a fee, it just struck me that the team that Ajax have had last season that won the title in Holland, you, you might be losing six or seven or more of that first team in a single summer, and it's it's not new that Ajax have to sell lots of players. It's not new that they break up a team. Regularly, they did it after 2019 when Frenchy Dion and Matthias de Ligt and Donny van der Beek all left. Um, well, that was they were in two different years. Um, Donny van der Beek left. Was, into... was Donny the year after? Yeah. So you've yeah. got uh, you've got Frankie Dion and, and Matthias de Ligt who who went after they got yeah. to the semi final. So Goldberg, even Goldberg, even... Goldberg, Graven, and Lasse Schöner were the other three notable uh, yeah. players that. But but even that not left that that after that not yeah one. not nearly as much as the range, the number of important players, you might argue. There were two absolutely vital players, but not five or six. And I think the other thing is that having spoken to the club, actually, on the run to the Champions League semi-finals, was um, they were ready for it. They knew. They had interest in De Ligt and De Jong and van der Beek, particularly the year before. Lasse Schoener was a bit different. Schoener was a bit older. Yeah. He was. It was maybe about time. Sintgraven and Dolberg were, were not quite as significant to the team. Um well, you can you can tell how significant they were to the team by where they ended yeah, up. Yeah, Dolberg, exactly. went Do- to nice. Dolberg was at Nice, so yeah. yeah. The thing I think it's that it's the sheer weight of first teamers that are going this summer, but it's also it was the the speed with which it all seemed to happen that 
all of a sudden you saw you Gravenberch and Masrawi going to Bayern had been had been telegraphed and then all and you think, okay, that's about the right time. Gravenberch has probably had three years as a first teamer. That's what Ajax do. Masrawi was part of the team that got to the Champions League semi final, so that's fine. He's had he's done his done his time at by at Ajax. Um but then to see Hilaire, who's probably only two years in, eighteen months in even to to his Ajax career. Um Anthony's been there a couple of years. Martinez Timber, who's only just come through, you sort of think this is this is a really accelerated process, and it's it's obviously the case that Ten Hard going has led either the players to think, okay, now is the time to to make the next step. I don't, there's no point getting used to Alfred Schroeder, who's the, the the new coach at Ajax. I might as well go now, or the club has thought that they've thought right, new coach, new start. Let's just bring, let's just accept that these players are all going to go, and we can bring a new generation through. And there are two things that I think. Are significant about the Ajax story. So let's do let's do this as like a choose your own adventure type thing. <laughs> so the the most obvious one is the sadness of it. It's the sorrow of the fact that Ajax do all this excellent work, generate all these players, create so much talent for football as a whole to enjoy, and yet never get to see it reach its its, its culmination. There will always be a question over what Ajax might have been able to achieve had they had the financial capacity or been able to persuade the players in some other way that they wanted to stay for two or three more years. You know, seeing Dravenberch at at his peak in Holland, could that have led Ajax back to the Champions League semi-finals? If they'd kept Dion Anderlecht and van der Beek and added Dravenberch and Anthony and Masraoui and, you know, Timber and whoever else to that team, would that team have been good enough to win the Champions League? Probably. There is a sadness there, and it's not just happening to Ajax. If you look at Porto as well, they've sold Luis Diaz, Fabio Vieira, and they will probably lose Vitinha as well to PSG this summer. That's their three best players, gone in the space of six months. You can make it a little bit of a case that it's happening kind of to Inter, who obviously last summer sold Ashraf Hakimi and Lukaku. This summer we've got Lukaku back um, and might yet add Paolo Dybala to it. Um, but might lose Milan Striniar to um, to PSG, who seem to just obviously be buying everybody. Um, there are a couple of others that might go. Nicola Barella has been linked with a couple of, with, with moves away as well. That's that's into who were champions of Italy last year and one are one of the ten biggest clubs in the world who can't hold on to who can't hold on to players. But they um, can rely on them coming back on loan the next season when it doesn't work out. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, that's worked out for them. And as I say, like I'm sure that Inter, you know, if Inter start next season with with Lautaro, Lukaku, and Dybala up front, I'm sure the fans won't be thinking, "Oh, isn't it a shame that Milan Skriniar left?" But the um, the, the, it's the same thing. It's that it there is that. It's, it seems like a very brutal summer for teams outside the moneyed elite of the Premier League and two or three teams in France and Germany and you know PSG, Bayern, Real and maybe Barcelona, whose finances remain a mystery to everybody. So there is a sadness aspect to what's happening at Ajax. Before, we, the, choose, before we choose our adventure, can I just quickly follow up on the sadness? Yes. Relating in, in particular to Ajax. Is there less of a sadness when it's actually quite transactional for Ajax in that they have made large profits or will potentially make large profits on those that are yet to leave because they're not we're not talking about just youth products here yes we are talking about a couple of high profile ones in Gravenberch and uh, and Timber but if you're talking about Anthony or Allaire or Lisandro Martinez, they're making potentially huge amounts of profit on bringing them in for yes having excellent scouts and 
negotiation skills and bringing them in from uh, clubs in South America or elsewhere in Europe, which where they've either failed at, like some, somebody like Allaire, and they've got them for less money. It was about 20 million that they got him for, and didn't West Ham pay like 40-odd um, for Sebastian Allaire? And now they're selling him roughly for what uh, West Ham bought him for. So they're making almost double the money back. They're making potentially huge amounts of money on a player like Anthony. If they sell him for 40, anywhere between 40 and 60, say it's 40, they're still more than doubling their money. Lisandro Martinez, I think, cost, you know, five, six million when they brought him in. They'll double, triple their money, maybe even more on that. So is the sadness a little bit less because they are working in that field where they are a little bit transactional, making huge amounts of money, and they appreciate and understand their place in what you just mentioned this hierarchy of football and actually they are trying to maximize the profitability of that if it's all youth products like you say 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 the same about some of the the great youth systems in the premier league or or in in england as well if some of those players who come out of you know the the southampton youth system or the fulham youth system or they they all stayed together at that club yes they'd be an incredible club but they appreciated that that's not necessarily going to happen so what you do you maximize the profitability of your lot so what i would what i would say to that sorry steve is is that yes yes in a lot of cases that's how it works so if you look at benfica Benfica sell Darwin Nunez to Liverpool for 65 million quid plus whatever else they're going to pay based on the performances. And they have used that money to buy David Neres from Shakhtar and Enzo Fernandez from River. And they will at some point doubtless spend more of it on some other people. Isn't Neres, Neres a former Ajax player? Neres is a former Ajax player. And that, that so from, if I was a Benfica fan, I think I would be able to, to tolerate the loss of Nunez by thinking this is what we do we find players i mean benfica bring through a load of youth youth products as well to be fair but we find you know they they have gone out and they have reinvested i mean i think so they probably got 80 million euros for nunez they've already spent 35 million of it that is that suggests okay we can take this massive fee for this one player and we can find other players and who knows maybe in two years time enzo fernandez will be going to barcelona or psg or whatever for some huge huge amount of money and they can then reinvest that and how often do they hit on those though how often do they benfica pretty frequently i would say if they if they know that's the other thing about being a fan if they know or they trust the club to be able to to regenerate with that new player who is two or three years younger, then yes, they will feel a little bit more settled. There are plenty of clubs who have had windfalls like Spurs after Gareth Bale that haven't necessarily yeah. done that. So you do need to at least trust or have uh, their club having a track record of success to, to not feel too perturbed about it. And, and they have a particularly good track record, Benfica, with finding low-priced centre-forwards who go on to have prolific seasons after season. If you think about uh, Jonas, who had, what, four, five, maybe even six years of, of regularly scoring uh, top-end 20 goals a season. And effectively, Darwin Nunez was his, was his ultimate successor. Mm. And, and you, Benfica taking a player in Nunez, who was playing two years ago in the Spanish second division, and turning him round and selling him for £80 million to a Premier League side suggests that that is very, very astute business. And I think most supporters would understand that you, you cannot turn down that kind of offer for a player who, who may, or, may or may not be able to make that step up to, to the elite level week in, week out. So, so certainly, you would, you, if you were a follower of Benfica, you'd be fairly confident that they've, they've got their ducks in a, in a row in terms of finding the next number nine 
who they can they can turn into a consistent sort of 20 30 goal a season goal scorer yeah i think that's right and yeah as a fan you'd no doubt that trust is important to you that sense of we okay we know we know how this works we mm-hmm. we do this what i think makes makes ajax slightly different is that i think they will try and promote internally before they don't spend big money they might well because they get they have so much money coming in they might say right we can go and sign whoever the best player is, as at Alkmaar, or we'll go and get someone from Scotland or from Greece or, you know, kind of another lead around that level. Um, they do a lot of business in Scandinavia. So that might be that if there's someone at Bromby or at FC Copenhagen, they say, right, that is where we're going to go and they will be the players that replace us. So I'm not saying they won't spend any money, but my, my instinct is that, that they will believe they have the replacements for those players within the youth system and they will look there first because that's how IATS work. And that is how a club should work. And it's to Ajax's enormous credit. Maybe that might that might in fact be the thing that makes this summer so striking. That Ajax, like a lot of teams, Dort, like right up to Borussia Dortmund, Southampton, teams like that, will have a succession plan in place for players. That's how they that's how they will kind of think of think of things. Um, my instinct is that they would probably want to sell two, maybe three in a summer, and they'll think, mm-hmm. okay, that so we lose Masrawi, Birch and say Lissandro Martinez, we can find. A defender, a right, a centre half, a right back, and a um, an essential midfielder within the youth system. We, they will let them go when they have the player. Yes, because they'll know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And Birch is a great example of that. Part of the reason they sold Van der Beek was because they felt right. We now need to let Birch hmm. stand up and have his moment. He is the next one on the production line. Ten Hag said that to me when I spoke to him. That. That, that part of Ajax's thinking is we we need these players to leave because otherwise the next one can't come through. If Dan, if Donny van der Beek turns around and says, "Well, look, lads, I'm really happy here. I want to stay here until I'm 34," they're like, "Well, hang on, Donny, you're not only is that going to cost us money because you, we're not going to get the fee for you, but also you will cost us more because we'll suddenly have central midfielders piling up in the background." So I think they they would be perfectly happy to lose two or three, losing six or seven is maybe a bit pointless in two ways. One is that you, they won't have six or seven ready in mm. the youth system, not a chance. It just doesn't work like that. And two is, I'm not sure they can spend that money. Not sensibly. You know, if you, if you think about the amount they get, if it's 40 million euros for Allaire, if it's 50 million euros for Anthony, it was six, six to 16 million quid to 25 million euros for Draven Birch, 20 million euros for Draven Birch, more for my, another another 35 40 for martinez you're suddenly looking at 150 180 million euros that they're bringing in they can't spend that in one in one summer so it will just go and sit in the club and it might improve the facilities it might mm. might mean yeah. that they can be a little bit more ambitious but i think there is a point where for all of these clubs because of the, the parts of the market they have to operate in that you you are basically just taking in money that can't do anything for you not 50 really. million spend is a big summer for for somebody yeah. massive like Ajax, yeah, yeah. I thought I was the podcast idealist. What, what's what's happened? What, what, why are the roles reversing here? Because yeah. I, I, I kind of think that in, in Ajax's situation, the violin is pretty tiny compared to the impact of having to sell players has on other clubs because they have proven time and again that they are able to, to survive that. They were, they were dominant in the 1930s, but they have been consistently the dominant Dutch side since the 1960s, yet have always been a club that has, has sold its, its talent. His, history is littered with, with phenomenal players who've come through Ajax's system, but had their, their glory or their most notable glories elsewhere. 
and whilst this this summer might be might be a revolution beyond what they would normally experience in terms of of turnover it still feels as though that that bottleneck that you talked of a moment ago Rory is just one of the many reasons that you feel as though this is is it almost a necessity for them you know Ryan Gravenberch has to go yes it would be great if he was part of an Ajax team for the next two or three years to see what they could accomplish but they they will have the next Ryan Gravenberch whether that player is ready to go next season or not remains to be seen but after two or three seasons in the first team he needs to move on to enable all the other stuff that they do so well youth system scouting in particular to to fulfill its potential so th- this is all just part of European football's ecosystem Ajax know their place they know their role and and in the same way that we sometimes talk about Premier League money filtering to the other big clubs in Europe when the likes of Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United swoop for their players. So too, there are other parts of the world, other clubs in world football who rely on Ajax's scouting to filter their money down towards them. And and if if suddenly Ajax were to put a cork in that and say, no, we Mm. are not selling these players, then all all sorts of parts of football's ecosystem would, would slow down as a consequence. And it feels as though, bearing in mind Ajax have won the last two titles in Eredivisie, they'd have won the last four if it wasn't for the cancelled COVID season. And that all within the context of selling £200 million worth of talent after they reached the 2019 Champions League semi-final suggests they are well equipped to survive and understand that you know domestic success is not quite but almost guaranteed. And therefore, it's only natural that those players that they bring through are going to to move on to earn better money and more prestigious titles in other countries. So there's yeah, there's two kinds of financial reality. You often use financial reality in the with with doom surrounding it, but there's also the financial reality of the sort that you lean into mm. and you take advantage of, understanding that that's not only necessary but also favourable, given all the reasons that. Uh, that Stephen mentioned. So it, it might mitigate the sadness, but then the sadness is, is perhaps upped because of everything that's going on, particularly this season. What's the uh, the other ch- choice in your choose-your-own-adventure Ajax fans? Well, it's funny if it's, it's, it, it was said beautifully by Stephen, as, th- as things so often are. That... <laughs> is this why you don't let me speak until midway through? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because otherwise right. you... And you, now, unleash Wyeth! <laughs> you, you ruin my narrative flow. The, um, there are always more footballers. And it, it's funny that this struck me more with Porto than with um, than with Ajax. But Fabio Vieira has gone relatively under the radar. I think. I mean, I've, I think I've seen him play a couple of times. I'm sure he's extremely good. I'm sure he'll be a great signing for Arsenal. Um, I'm not sure about his his um, price tag. I think it might be a lot. I don't think he started that many games in Port in Portugal. Um, but two years ago, I'm not even sure that at Porto they thought, oh, well, Fabio Vieira's going to come through and that'll be fine because he'll be the linchpin of the team for two years. These clubs have an ability to to find and replenish talent that we should be rewarding. And that annoy- it annoys me basically. The reason, the reason that we are talking about this now, Stephen, to answer your tiny violin question, <laughs> is because it's annoying. It's really annoying that these clubs do things... It's hard to say that Porto particularly do things in the right way because there's lots of kind of behind the scenes issues at Porto and have been for a long time. 
but in a footballing sense, these clubs are doing things that we sh- everyone should want their clubs to be to be doing. They're finding talent, they are nurturing it, and they are using it to replenish their sales. The, this is how they are how clubs should be run in a, in a purely sporting sense. Ajax are very well run in other ways, notwithstanding the Overmars thing. Porto are less well run in other ways. They part of the reason they had to sell Diaz in January because was because of their debts. But in a footballing sense, this is how it should work. Mm. I and I think that the thing that Stephen Steve touches on about say Dravenbirch that there will be another Dravenbirch through in, in maybe not next season and maybe not the season after that but the season after that there will be a Dravenbirch there will be someone who's just as good as Ryan Dravenbirch at football at being a midfielder playing for Ajax and all of the other all of the bigger, the bigger clubs than Ajax will decide that he's the one they have to have and they'll be they'll be you know the agents will descend on him and for some reason George Mendes will have a mandate to sell him in England and there'll be another guy, there'll be Pastorello or someone who's, who's his guy in Italy and they're all kind of competing for this commission and there's loads of transfer stories and everyone goes, gets, goes sort of nuts about, oh, well, you know, we're not, my club's not showing any ambitions, they're not in for this guy and, and everyone will kind of talk about him endlessly for six months a year and then he'll sign for somebody and to be honest, be a little bit of a disappointment like Matthias de Ligt because it turns out that no one is the world's sort of is is the perfect footballer mm. that no one is the magic solution to a team that that players exist only in context and it depends on who the coach is and what the system is and what the style of play is whether they can express themselves properly and how not only that but like how they settle off the pitch and you know whether they get on with their teammates and all that stuff but the the, the root of that is there there are always more footballers and i just wonder whether fans of bigger clubs the clubs who are kind of predatory in the transfer market should perhaps try and remember that a little bit when the when the transfer target that they want that summer doesn't come in. Just remember that a year later there'll be a player who is just as good as that player. Mm. No one is no one no one apart from Messi is Messi. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there is no there is no player that you can't afford to miss out on because ultimately there will be someone along next who who is of exactly the same standard. Does they these clubs keep producing players? But the flip side of it is, I find it deeply irritating that football doesn't reward that approach. That is how clubs should be run. That is That should be what UEFA, and maybe even above them FIFA, is trying to encourage clubs to be. There should be a way of incentivising teams to be more like Ajax, to develop their own talent, to have a continuous pipeline coming through. Whereas at the moment... Other than getting the chance to ha- to make some money, so that you can spend the money, so you can sell more players, to make the money, to spend the money, to you know, to be trapped in this endless cycle, there is no incentive to be Ajax. The incentive is to be Real Madrid or PSG or Manchester City or Manchester United or Liverpool. And I, although some of those clubs do bring players through, you know, Man City have got Foden in the team, and there's there's Matati and there's uh, Cole Palmer and a couple more who they they rate really highly who are all, I'm sure, incredibly talented and maybe one of whom will, will play regularly in the Manchester City first team because the ultimately the incredibly successful teams do not create their own players. They can't create their own players. It feels to me like there should be there needs to be a way of rebalancing football so that the teams that do things in the right way, like Ajax, are rewarded rather than effectively punished. I can't, can't believe I'm having to continue to play the role of pragmatist. Is Ajax's reward, and, and similar if you're talking about Porto and Benfica, are the rewards not the huge amount of money 
that they bring in, the profit that they make on these players, whether they're players that they've they bought cheaply from abroad or players that they've developed for themselves. Just mentioned it was it was very nearly two hundred million pounds worth of, of players that Ajax sold on the back of the twenty nineteen Champions League semi final, and those weren't all first team players. Those were a lot of you know squad players developed players that moved on in the same way that Chelsea make an awful lot of, of money selling players that haven't played for their first team because of the reputation. There is an Ajax tax, deservedly so perhaps, but if you look at the money that Juventus spent on De Ligt and Barcelona spent on De Jong, you would probably, with the benefit of hindsight, say now that they overpaid for those players. They haven't fulfilled the kind of potential that that price tag would suggest. And, and therefore, Ajax are benefiting from the system, their place in that ecosystem, from making sure that there isn't a stagnation of talent. Because having come through Ajax's system or having been scouted by Ajax seems to immediately add a premium to a player's mm-hmm. value when they're sold on to a big club. So therefore, everybody is playing their role somewhere in there. And yes, it would be glorious to see Ajax emerge and win the Champions League or even even the Europa League. But the reality is, is that is a much more unlikely aspiration for them than the, the one that they are currently fulfilling, which is to keep making huge amounts of money, turning players over so that they consistently remain the big beast in Dutch football. And that isn't a bad position for them to be in because the situ- they are slightly constrained by being a Dutch club, which yep. is the seventh biggest league in, in Europe in terms of UEFA coefficients. I think Ajax are the 15th biggest club in, in Europe based on those UEFA coefficients. It's going to be, it's very, di- I mean, the Netherlands could move above Portugal into sixth if they had a, a decent few seasons runs in terms of European success. But the reality is that they're not going to move up and down those standings in that regard. So that's where the constraints come from, really. Not from not from them not being able to hold on to their talent. The only thing I would suggest, which I think is really interesting, is maybe it should be a case of saying, well, look, if you're a club that can and does spend huge amounts of money like Manchester City and Chelsea do, that you can't also have vast academies of developing talent because that's Mm. having your cake and eating it you're either a club that spends money or you're a club that develops players and maybe the danger would be that we might get into a situation where there are a handful of clubs who have the resources you could throw PSG into the mix who are capable of doing both of those things and that's when it might become an issue well I'm sure and I'm sure if that our vast would become an issue I'm sure that our vast listenership in Holland will be streaming at us saying, well, that's exactly what Ajax do in Dutch football. That if you looked at De Jong yeah. didn't start out at Ajax. I think De Jong started out at Willem Tvey. Uh, De Ligt may have started out somewhere else as well. You know, they, they hoover up young talent from Holland and train it in the Ajax way. So that you can make a case that Ajax are both prey and predator. Um, you, Steve, Steve's right that Ajax's position isn't a bad one. Let's not pretend that Ajax are kind of the great the great martyrs of European football. Like they, they get to make huge sums of money, as as do Benfica and Porto, and they know deep down that of the seven players that they sell for 150 million quid, that three of them will be replaced by domestic talent, homegrown talent that that you know cost them their wages and maybe a, like a nominal fee to Utrecht or to Twente or whoever. But basically, they will 
they, they are getting some of that money for free. What, what I would say is that because of the constraints that, you, that Steve's outlined, that money has a limited amount of utility to IX. You can't, they, IX can't spend 150 million quid in the transfer market. They can't say, do you know what? We've happened upon this incredible generation of players and now we've sold them all, but we can go and get Bremer from Torino and we can go and get such and such from Villa, you know, Dan Juma from Villarreal and I don't know, I'm trying to think of else is good. Julian Vidal from, from Benfica or whatever. They can't go and say, we, on the back of this 150 million quid, we can go and build a team that not only will be dominant in Holland, it can compete in Europe too. They, they have to hope that they have two or three or four who might come through, through from the academy and hit the ground running. And they have to go and sign the Boca Junior central defender and the you know, Internationals right winger because they're hoping that they are the players, the next players off the, off the worldwide production line, which I agree with Steve completely. Ajax have a really important kind of, uh, they're kind of node within that, within football's economy that they take the money from the big clubs and then disseminate it to, the, to teams smaller than them. That's really important. Club Brews do the same thing. Um, Benfica and Porto and Sporting Lisbon, that is their role and it's a crucial one. They're probably the most important teams in football's economy. Um, and they're entry points for a lot of players from South America into European football. Yeah, or in... the, the kind of players that, <laughs> as we've spoken before about kind of entry points into the Premier League, because the elite clubs in the Premier League don't trust them until they've seen them in the Premier League. A lot of the bigger clubs want to see them succeed in Europe and then they might go and pick it. And it's all about, is it not, yeah. the kind of the agency that that each club has in that process. When when yeah, Erling Haaland was, was, was talking about, you know, we were talking about Erling Haaland where, where he would go next. We were talking about this kind of predetermination. We actually kind of arrived upon the fact that he might go and spend a couple of years at Real Madrid before then joining Manchester City for his prime because that was the way that Mina Raiola and um, that Alfie Holland and Erling Holland had set it out. It had been, these are the steps that you will take and it is it is now set in stone. Let's follow that path. There's a, that's and, they reflected. and they flipped it around. That's they flipped it around. What, what so he'll, he'll, they flipped it around so he's got a release clause in his city in, contract. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Spend his peak in, in, in the Bernabeu instead. But the, the, the principle remains is that you have this predetermined set of steps. And is it, isn't that reflected in Ajax's position in this whole kind of turnaround of player talent? That you, as long as you understand your role within it and you are happy and that those set of steps don't, randomly change to mean that you are dislodged or you have less agency then then surely and I think this is why Stephen is reducing the size of the violin is because Ajax are complicit to the extent that they actually are okay with everything that's happening and therefore that it goes from a cello down to viola down to a violin but they're not they're not just complicit in that sense they're complicit in the in the hierarchical nature of it because they they spend their time taking talent from the other teams in holland so it would have been far better from Willem Tve, i think it was them i might be wrong would have been far better for them to develop frankie de Jong and to get 50 million quid maybe not they wouldn't have got what, what i got from barcelona because of the ajax tax but they might have got 40 or 50 million for him and that would have enabled them to then compete with ajax because they have a limit their ceiling is much high, much further away from them currently. Mm. I think the thing that troubles me about Ajax is that they are basically banging their heads on a, against a brick wall. They're running to stand still. All Ajax can do next year is try and be as good as Ajax this year. There is no room for them to grow. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's not football's fault. It's largely a demographic thing in terms of um, the size of their television pool in Holland, the, the strength of the league. Although I would suggest that you know, if PSG... Is the Eredivisie realistically that much less appealing to watch than Lead 1? 
probably not by a vast amount, to be perfectly honest. The standard is lower. At the, there's more of a divergence between the good teams and the bad teams, I think. But in terms of the lead of talents, I think Holland's probably just as reliable as... Um, as France, are you and saying it's that, that it's that issue? That's the th- that's the thing that bothers me. Is that it strikes me that Ajax, for all that, yeah, there is a degree of complicity for all that they are not suffering in any real sense. For all that their their reality is quite pleasant. Really, they get to compete for the Eredivisie title every year. They get to see all these great players on their way to greatness. Um, it feels like at some point a key element in competitive sport has been stripped of them, which is the right to grow. So you're saying essentially that what Ajax need to do is because of their their situation demographically, as you mentioned, they need to be kind of plucked out of that restrictive league setup and maybe transplanted into a uh, a European wide league, which the thing some is, might Ferris, think is super, you're um, taking the where place. they would have the opportunity to grow exponentially because their wings are not being clipped and also they get an opportunity to have a portion of the wealth that is going to be clipped above them so that too many elite clubs don't get too far ahead. You are taking the piss out of me by suggesting that I am I am committing the heresy of supporting the Super League. <laughs> but I believe I've said on this podcast and I've definitely said in lots of other places, European football, continental European football, would improve if they took the 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 second tier leads, Holland, Belgium, maybe the Scandinavian leads, Portugal, Greece, Switzerland, possibly Austria, maybe, and and unified them. That would benefit European football. I'm absolutely sure of that. We have, have definitely to, mentioned that before. You, yes. would, you would have to. I quite like the Atlantic lead idea. I I think the Benelux lead. I'm. It, it, I think they, they tried it in, in women's football and then and then canned it. I think that's it's nonsensical that they won't do it. it, it the benefits of it are clear. Um, I think the Belgian clubs are keen, and you can see why they're keen, because Belgian football is an absolute Wild West, a, a full-on show. One of the great undercovered stories in European football is how, how chaotic Belgian, the, the ownership of Belgian clubs is, how corrupt Belgian football has become. Um, you know how strong their beer is there, though? Well, they, so they, they may not care. <laughs> or the they du- just make their decisions after sampling too much of it. The Dutch clubs have, have always said they have no interest in a Benelux lead. That's, they've been pretty consistent on that. That is self-interest from, from not, not, I think, not so much from Ajax and PSV and Feyenoord, but from the teams below that. Um, the go-ahead Eagles. I won't hear a word against go-ahead Eagles, but I th- suspect <laughs> it's your Altmars and your Sventers and, and those teams. That, because they're that, in the seventh best league in Europe and they don't want to be involved with the eighth. No, no, it's it, it's that Austria's the, eighth actually. Oh, is it in, not Belgium? Yeah. Okay, they're in the seventh best lead in Europe, and they like finishing fifth in it because it gets them Europa League football, and they're worried that they might lose out to Club Bruges and Anderlecht. And I, I get that, but it's not necessarily the only argument that that makes if, sense. If it, I, you join the leagues, so have more places for Europe. That's fine. You, you have more places for Europe. You'd also have far greater strength. It would it, you'd be able to retain players more. You'd have better finances it would it would make sense to join those two leagues together but i i would in over the next 10 years i'd be looking to do it far more broadly i think that's the only way that you that you address competitive balance both within leads scandinavian and between leads get, get yeah, the scandinavians involved <laughs> a, 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 scan, a scandy lead makes sense as well you've got a, a climatic problem there because obviously a lot of those leads run on a, yes. on a different calendar the but have, we got time, have we got time for this podcast before we <laughs> before we go in july what the second tier european super league light would look like you could have an alpine league it, it just we've got to do this before we go come on hugh 
This is <laughs> right, okay, fine. fine. Exec right, you, you, produce you just, this stuff. You just say that, and then magically, after hours of pre- preparation and production work, it happens. Go on, go on, you. I won't ruin the content for upcoming episodes then, but the, short of structural change in terms of how the leads work, IX have a ceiling, have a glass ceiling that they, they cannot exceed. And I think that there is something about that that offends me. On a sporting level, I find that offensive, that you have a team that does everything right, that operates in a way that most fans would want their clubs to operate, and yet they are told, this is your place in the hierarchy. Steve's completely right. His his brutal, ruthless pragmatism is completely correct, but you are, they're told, this is your place in the hierarchy, this is what you have to be. Getting money for players is only worthwhile if you think afterwards your team might be stronger for it. The Coutinho model. That's the idea of selling players, that you sell one player and you bring in two and suddenly that completes the team. That's that's what fans want. Ajax don't get that. Ajax aren't allowed that. The way European football has become, has allowed itself to be structured predicates against that and I think that's unfair. But it also makes for a less costly mistake. Um, so if you, if you are operating within that, that band of clubs where you need to spot the talent, spend less money on it because it's available to you and therefore it's cheaper, and then sell on as a profit. That is an area where mistakes are not punished as much. If you're the club buying, if, you, if you're buying Frankie de Jong, and, and, and I disagree slightly, I think he's probably worth the money. Mateus de Ligt, may, maybe not, but only very slightly. But if you're going to order them, you'd put it like that. And you'd say it's more likely that you could, could make that argument for de Jong. But if you fail on those two, Ajax have succeeded in two of the processes, getting them, having them, and selling them. So three, three, even if you think about the actual playing time they had at the club. And Barcelona and Juventus have to take the risk on them. Now, at the time, they were considered absolute sure things. So you could understand why they would do that and also invest that kind of money in it. But you, you are in a, in a place of relative comfort if you're Ajax, because if you make a mistake on somebody you've spent six to 10 million on, and you're bringing in 150 to 200 million over the course of two, maybe even three seasons. That's okay. You can make those mistakes and you can still try again and eventually find that one that gets you the jackpot of the 50, 60 million sell on. That seems like a fa- that seems like a fairly comforting yeah. position to be in, despite but, but the what, fact that you are never going to, or you, it, it is a restricted position by its very, by its but very that's nature. The problem. What's the point of doing all of it? Because it's satisfying. Is it not satisfying? You've you mentioned football manager already once. This, this podcast, you, you, you get that sense just from afar in that kind of completely virtual world of playing a, playing a different role in that game. Yes, you might want every game to eventually end up being the manager of Manchester City and spending 150 million quid on that player who you've seen, who you could never afford before, even though your excellent scouting now told you that they were going to be good. Or you went on a message board and somebody told you, which is not something I've done. So I hope that still is a relevant sentence. But you, you are playing the role which has... Does it not a certain level of satisfaction if you are continually successful within it? Yes, that's probably true. That, yeah, that's probably right. They, they, although I'm, I'm certain that Ajax take great pride in the work that they do. And yet, no question that the, the money they receive that enables them to keep doing it and maybe to do it to a higher level is their reward. I just query whether it's reward enough. I think there's one big clue as to, to Ajax's acceptance of, of their place in the pecking order. And, and it's whenever they sell one of these players to a what would be deemed a rival big European club, they always pay a, a tribute to them on social media, very often, whether it's a manager or Edwin van der Sar, someone like that. And I don't think you see that anywhere else. A club will announce it's, it's sold a star player, whereas Ajax always seem to go out of their way 
to to offer that player their very best wishes. Uh, Sad- Sadio Mane recently, but that no, was so, an outlier, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Mane was an absolute outlier, but Mane's a really interesting outlier because that is the first the first transfer between two major European teams for ages of a player at their peak that has been conducted basically without acrimony. Mm. And Liverpool seemed pretty happy once Bayern paid the paid the amount that Liverpool wanted. Mane's obviously happy he's got what he's want, he what got what he wanted. Bayern are happy they've got the player. Liverpool's fans who might have been expected to kick off about seeing one of their three best players leave have accepted that I think mostly with pretty good grace. They've there's a, the 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 sense is that Well Luis Diaz ten- and Darwin Nunez were both brought in before he went, which is yeah, the important part. Which helps. There's, a, I think, a lot of it is to do with with um, with fulfilment. That Mane has been at Liverpool for six years and won everything. You know what Sadio Mane can do with with, with Liverpool. You've seen it. You've had the benefit of it. I think Klopp said, you know, he, you know, we should be thankful that we that we had him rather than regretting that he's gone. And I think that's right. And that is relevant to the Ajax thing because the, at the heart of the reason that Mane has been kind of wished wished well on his way and offered a pat on the back and you know a thank you Sadio rather than having loads of people scream traitor. Although it'd be Scouse at him, <laughs> is because not all is the beca- trains from Houston to Liverpool are pretty busy on a match day. That's true. Um, it's it's because of that sense of fulfilment. Because the, unlike we say when Torres or Suarez left, you weren't weren't thinking. I wonder what they could have done mm. in a Liverpool team that befitted their talent. The the natural thing to think is, well, Sadio Mane has won everything at Liverpool. We've seen exactly what he can do. So l- that's fine. It's it's the time to leave. Ajax never get that sensation. You're right. They get to. They always make a point of saying thank you. Made in Ajax, you know, all that. Made in Amsterdam, all that stuff. They produce very good social media videos to say thank you to the, to to the players that they've produced. But they never have that sense of completion. They never have that sense yeah. of closure because it, every everyone goes too soon, naturally too soon. You never. The closest they came was in 2019, and that was a bit of a unicorn, to be honest. It was. It kind of came out of nowhere that Ten Hag put that team together. And I, I just find that quite sad that they that they the the fans of Ajax have to get used to the idea that the great team that they could have had always has to be somewhere else. Well, the, the violin is growing in size, so uh, perhaps we should uh, uh, end our conversation there. Rory, we said that you were going to scream into the void. Uh, Stephen and I were the void. We shouted back at you. Do you feel like uh, yeah, it was it a was sensible conversation with the void and you will have a, a lovely piece, which actually might be out before this podcast if you do it this week? No, it won't. It will be done at some point in July. He'll wait to see the reaction. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to see which way the wind's blowing. I'm just astonished that he's basically, he turns... He turns 30 and become yeah. sentimental overnight what's wrong oh no come on this is this is this is a misrepresentation i've i am above anything people are people people always get sort of get obsessed with who journalists support um but the main the main thing that i cherish in football and this is this has always been one on my sleeve is that diversity and is is red star belgrade being able to win the, win the european cup is i act and benfica i like the mystery of it and i i really miss the mystery of it i miss the fact that you, you, that occasionally there would be a player who was like 27 and amazing at playing for PSV Eindhoven. Like that, that is better for football. Um, so I, I think this is this is thematically consistent for me. I think everybody now knows that your real name is Rory van der Schmidt and you're from Amsterdam. <laughs> um, uh, who, uh, who, who, hang on, who am I? Du- no, go ahead, go ahead, Eagles are my Dutch team. Oh, okay. They always have been. I've got a, got a um, used to have a season ticket. Um, 
<laughs> the, that's a joke because go ahead make buses well uh, before we before we go we're actually going to end with something uh, which is also thematically consistent with what we've just heard because it's dutch related it's it's an email from a bbc colleague um past present and to a slightly more uh, restricted contractual nature future um drew savage who is uh, a great supporter of this podcast and um he, he said, um, he uh, sent an email during the hiatus, and I've been sitting on it for quite some time, um, but now it has relevance. Um, of all the many things, says Drew, that SPM has brought into my life, this was possibly the one I'd have least expected. Thank you, Hugh. And he has attached a picture of a recently purchased Knoppers bar, which you remember is uh, one of the, when we were really scrabbling around, having always <laughs> eaten prior or uh, just about to eat after the podcast, uh, when it was difficult for us to spend time together, uh, we unashamedly used as, as one of the foods for a, a recent episode of the Set Piece Menu. Um, he also adds this. Here is a link to the Wikipedia page of your new favourite footballer, who is a gentleman called Richard Knopper. Now, Drew is a uh, championship slash football manager um, player, I think, even now. And he says, on championship manager 0102, yeah. Knopper was a sort of Dutch Craig Hignett. Very good in the championship, but never quite cut the mustard in the top flight. Uh, now, Knopper, if you do click on the link to the Wikipedia page of said footballer, was born in a place called Rijswijk which is a suburb of The Hague where my grandma lived for 30 odd years, which if you go back right to the beginning of SPM, you'll know was what the... awaited trial at the International <laughs> Criminal Court. That is the ultimate SPM reference. That, is the, that, that remains the best thing that's ever happened on this podcast. Um, so uh, to all those who may well either know Richard Knopper or remain in Rijswijk. Um, or awaiting trial oh, awaiting trial international criminal court thank you and to, to drew as well uh, for a reminder that uh, we at least brought a few people's attention to the mighty knoppers nut bar uh, as ever thank you very much uh, indeed keep your correspondence coming to setpiece menu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Roy and to Stephen and to you all for listening we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed there you go. I'm, I'm delighted we got a reference into the Hague. We're actually thinking of going on holiday to the Hague this summer. Well, from my memories, what, enfor- a small child, enforced a lovely holiday. place. Enforced holiday, yeah. I've got, got some questions to answer. The, um, the, no, it's, um, we've got some friends there. Again, not awaiting trial. Um, <laughs> when do you, you do, the, like, when they, when you do the tour, do they say, this is where Hugh Ferris's grandmother spent the last 30 years of her life? I am... Um, Oh, that's brutal. The, um, the... Yes, and, the, and then they point to a, a small apartment building in the suburb of Rijswijk, clearly. <laughs> that's what I meant, that's what I meant. Yes, not the... Uh... the, um, not the I, may, I, may, I mainly want to go to the Hayden holiday so that I can continually do that joke. <laughs> Hello, sir. Do you live here? Oh, they let you out on day release, do they? <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. That, oh, no, no, more to people in England. More to where you're on holiday. The Hayden. Don't worry, I'm not being made to go there. <laughs> Would you like better laughter than Stephen and I just provided Sorry. you? No, it's fine. <laughs> canned, canned laughter. Let's do canned laughter. <laughs> <laughs>